0: You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. There's been a lot of debate about what the last trumpet mentioned by the Apostle Paul is. I think I can conclusively prove to you what he is referring to, and unfortunately, I can almost guarantee that you have never heard this theory before. Let's get started. First, let's read one of the famous passages in which Paul mentions the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15:51 51-53 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So it's pretty clear that he thinks that the resurrection of the dead, sometimes called the rapture, will occur with a quote, last trumpet. There have been a lot of theories about this. I will present two very popular ones and give a few reasons that I think that they are wrong before I tell you what I think the last trumpet is. The first theory is that Paul is talking about the last trumpet judgment in the book of Revelation. You may recall that in the book of Revelation, the judgments on the world are depicted as seven distinct trumpets and seven bowls. In this theory, they say that the rapture will occur at the last trumpet judgment, which is depicted in Revelation chapter 11. There are many things that I could say about the problems with that theory, but I will only mention one as it is the most important to our discussion. The vision in the book of Revelation was given to the Apostle John many years after Paul wrote either of the passages in question. In fact, Paul would have been long dead by the time that the vision of the seven trumpets was given to John. The reason that this is significant is that it would mean that no one in Paul's immediate audience would have had the foggiest notion as to what he was referring to when he said the last trumpet. While it is technically possible that the Lord revealed the precise details of the book of Revelation to Paul, including the imagery of the trumpet judgments, decades before they were revealed to John, it would be the first time in the Bible that the details of a revelatory vision was spoken of by someone before the time that it was, quote, revealed. It would be like the prophet Isaiah, who preceded the prophet Daniel by nearly 100 years, making a reference to Daniel's future vision of the four beasts, one like a lion, another like a bear, another like a leopard, etc. That particular vision was revealed to Daniel, after Isaiah. And though some of the information or doctrines contained in the visions can be known by others beforehand, there is no precedent in all of scripture for the sometimes allegorical images used to convey visions being known before the vision takes place. I will suggest that whatever the last trumpet that Paul was talking about is, it must be doctrinal information that Paul's readers were intended to understand, something that would be impossible if he were referring to the trumpets that John would see in a vision many years after this. And I will demonstrate in a moment that both he and his audience would have known from their studies of the scripture exactly what the last trumpet referred to. The second, and I believe wrong, interpretation of the last trumpet reference that we will deal with is the view that he was referring to the trumpets which are blown on Rosh Hashanah, the so-called Feast of Trumpets. I certainly believe that the three fall feast days will have prophetic fulfillment in the last days, but I would argue against the idea that the feast we know of as the Feast of Trumpets has anything to do with the rapture. I will list a few reasons from an article written by Charles Cooper, a former professor of hermeneutics at Moody Bible Institute, why both he and I believe this way. First, it violates the fulfillment pattern. The first four feasts were fulfilled in a very precise way, each occurring on the very day that it was supposed to occur in succession. Charles Cooper makes the following point in his article, quote, Christ died and was buried on Nisan 14. On the night before the Lord died, He instituted a new memorial, the Lord's Supper, that incorporated wine, blood of the Passover, and bread, unleavened bread. On the first Sunday following Passover, the Jews were to celebrate the Feast of first fruits. During the week of our Lord's death, Sunday fell on the 17th of Nisan. Fifty days later, the Feast of Pentecost occurred, at which time God poured out His Spirit. If the first feasts were fulfilled in succession like this, on the very days of the feast themselves, we would expect the Fall Feast to be filled with the same precision. The Fall Feast therefore must be fulfilled within a 21 day period, beginning with the Feast of Trumpets and ending with the Day of Atonement. The problem here is that the people who teach that the Rapture will occur on Rosh Hashanah also teach that the Day of Atonement will occur on the end day of the 70th week of Daniel. Perhaps I'll do another video about the very amazing significance of the fulfillment of the Fall Feasts, But it will suffice to say here that if the end of the 70th week or 7 year period is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, and you want to be consistent with how the spring feasts were fulfilled, then Rosh Hashanah occurs 21 days before the end of the 70th week. And I don't think that most people claiming that the rapture is on Rosh Hashanah believe that the rapture will occur 21 days before the end of the 70th week of Daniel. There are too many problems with that idea to go into here. The second problem with this is that there is no such thing as a, quote, Feast of Trumpets. This may come as a shock to those of you that have promoted this idea, but the first Feast of Tishri, that we sometimes call the Feast of Trumpets, is not given that title in the Bible, nor is it called Rosh Hashanah. These are titles given 1,500 years later in the 2nd century AD. Some translations, unfortunately, add the word Trumpets to reflect this modern tradition, but they usually do this with italics in order to show that it's not in the original text. In addition, Cooper adds this point, "...unlike Passover or Atonement, the first Feast of Tishri has no biblical examples in Scripture. How the Jews were to celebrate this feast is unknown and completely lost to history. There is not one recorded example in the Bible of the children of Israel celebrating this feast, nor is there a record in Jewish writings outside the Bible of an actual celebration of this feast before the 2nd century AD, that is, 200 years after the death of the Lord Jesus." In addition, unlike the other feasts, the Bible never gives a deeper meaning for this feast. Therefore, all the studies that try to link Rosh Hashanah with the rapture often find themselves forcing a pattern onto a non-biblical tradition in order to make their points. To see how this problem came about, and very importantly, to see the specific details in the text in question, I would direct you to the article in the notes called The Rapture and the Feast of Trumpets Are Separate and Unrelated though I will also quote the relevant portion of that article in the notes below. It is not my intention here to do an exhaustive debunking of this idea. I don't think it matters too much if you're not 100% convinced of my negative points regarding the other theories. I would rather move on to explaining what the last trumpet really is, because I believe that the positive argument is so strong that it will make these other theories increasingly unattractive by comparison. It should first be noted that when Paul uses this term last, as in last trumpet, he is using the Greek word eschatos, which is where we get our word eschatology, the study of end times. It is not necessary, therefore, for Paul to be saying the last, as in the last in a series of other trumpets, as some take it. But rather, it is that this trumpet that he was referring to was a trumpet that was somehow associated with the last days. In other words, it was like he was saying the last days trumpet. I hope to demonstrate to you that Paul and every other learned Jew would have understood this reference to be to the silver trumpets of Numbers 10, not ram's horns trumpets as some believe. The biblical prophets like Joel and Jeremiah later connected these silver trumpets of Numbers 10 to the herald for the eschatological day of the Lord, an event that Paul consistently connected with the rapture. This will take some explaining and it's a bit complicated, so let's get started. First, let's read the relevant section in Numbers chapter 10. Numbers ten one through three says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Here we see that Moses was instructed to make two silver trumpets. They had two main purposes. The first purpose is detailed here, as they were to be blown in order to signal the gathering together of the congregation of believers. I shouldn't have to explain to you too much the obvious symbolic connection that this part could possibly have to the rapture, which is a gathering together of all the righteous people to meet the Lord in the air. We will explain this in more detail in a minute. The second function of these silver trumpets might not be as obviously connected to the rapture. That function is detailed a few verses later in verse 9. It says, when you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. So the second purpose of the silver trumpets of Numbers 10 is to sound an alarm for war, at which point God will deliver the people from their enemies, and this point will be interesting later. The blowing of the silver trumpets to gather the elect together and the sounding of the alarm became a motif later with the prophets. They began to say that these two functions of the silver trumpets would be combined in order to signal the beginning of the eschatological day of the Lord. A very good example of this is found in Joel 2 verse 1. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Another example of this is found in Zephaniah one 14 through 14-16, which says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. You might be thinking, hey, that doesn't sound like a good thing. I thought the rapture was supposed to be a good thing. Well, it most certainly is. But one of the reasons it is good is because the elect will be taken out of the way before the wrath of God starts. We will see in a crystal clear way later on that the day of the Lord was spoken of as a very good thing for the elect, but a very bad thing for everyone else. Remember, there are two aspects of the trumpets in Numbers 10. The first for gathering the elect and the second for war against the enemies of God. Jeremiah emphasizes the distinction of the first gathering together for the purpose of hiding the elect from the coming judgment when he says, "...declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together, and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the standard toward Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction." I felt really liberated when I finally understood this because it made so many Bible verses make sense all of a sudden. The New Testament consistently talks about the day of the Lord as a really good thing for believers and a really bad thing for everybody else. Peter explicitly tells his readers that believers should look forward to the day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3.12. This makes sense because it is the day of the church's glorification, yet at the same time it is the day that the wrath of God starts for everybody else. Paul makes it very clear that this is his theology in almost every one of his letters. And it's also why he has no problem in calling the rapture the day of the Lord. He interchanges the phrase day of the Lord to refer to the rapture several times, as we will see. He does this because the rapture initiates the day of the Lord. Once the elect is gathered together with the trumpet, the wrath of God begins. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. You can see that Paul simply calls the rapture that he just got done describing in exquisite detail the, quote, day of the Lord. He says that it is a day of destruction which will not be able to be escaped for those in darkness. In his next letter to the Thessalonians, he makes this theology very clear. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10, it says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Paul says that the repayment of the wicked will happen on the same day of the church's glorification. A few other examples of Paul referring to the rapture as the day of the Lord can be seen in 1 Corinthians 1.8, 2 Timothy 4.7-8, and 2 Thessalonians 2.1-2. Paul was very familiar with the writings of Joel, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and many other prophets that equated the trumpet and alarm of the silver trumpets of Numbers 10 to the day of the Lord's gathering together of the elect and the beginning of the eschatological judgment, which we know of as the rapture. Therefore, when Paul referred to the eschatological or last days trumpet call that would occur at the rapture, which would initiate the day of the Lord, he was referring to something that every learned Jew would know about and something I would submit we should know about. In conclusion, the silver trumpets of Numbers 10 are in view in this passage, not the ram's horns of Rosh Hashanah, which isn't even a biblical concept, but rather a new Jewish tradition. If you would like to know more about this, I would recommend my hour and a half video on the rapture, called The Rapture Puzzle Solved, which can be seen in the notes. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes, or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.